0: who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast by keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you, let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. The Word of the Lord. Be
1: to God. Um, good morning. Before I begin this sermon today, I want to take just a moment to speak to parents with little children who are feeling. Um, burdened as children's ministries are on hold for the time being and I know that I'm speaking primarily to those who perhaps right now are in the Commons or maybe even watching online from home because it's too hard to be here Uh, and that's a real struggle for some the question of whether it's even worth it to come to church um, is a question they've had to wrestle with I know it's been very very hard and I want to encourage you right now parents you need to know that God is glorified He's pleased and he is happy as you gather with your family to worship him in the congregation, even if it feels like you spend most of the sermon getting up, going into the hallway, coming back, going outside, and returning again. I want to tell you this is worship. God is worshiped as you train your children, as you care for your children, and as you count being with God's people with your children worth more than the convenience of being at home on a Sunday morning. When God gathered Judah in a solemn call to return to him with their whole hearts, he said this through the prophet Joel, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. This is worth it, dads and moms. And to grandparents and to those who are not Um, caring for young children during this time, I would encourage you to reach out to the families who are struggling, perhaps even offer to help if they're comfortable with that. And parents of little people, please take heart because God is glorified and by his grace, the gates of hell cannot prevail against what you do week by week. Christ is building his church and souls are being formed. And Lord willing, this is just for a season, but it is a season where God is being uniquely glorified in you. And now to the preaching of his word. Well, friends, as uh, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, teach me your statutes. Uh, May I keep them with my whole heart. We, as God's people, have a relationship to the Bible. If you're a Christian, then in some way, shape, or form, you're concerned with knowing and doing God's will. As the Apostle Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And so as Christians, one of the most basic things about us is that we are people who love the Lord, and if we're people who love the Lord, then we're people who, to some degree, are focused upon his word. Hopefully, wholeheartedly focused on his word. And if you love the Lord and are focused on his word, then you probably want to obey it. Is that correct? Well, as someone who's interested in obeying God's word, have you ever come up uh, to some verses in the Bible, perhaps here early on in the year in your Bible reading plan, and just wondered how in the world they're supposed to apply to you? Let's just do a little experiment for a moment. Open to Leviticus 19 with me. This is just a sampling of commands of God in the middle of the Mosaic law. Let's just consider, as an example, eight verses, verses 23 through 30 in Leviticus 19. And as somebody who loves God and wants to obey his word, I would ask you, what do you do with these? Verse 23 through 25, when you come into the land and plant any kind of fruit, Uh, any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it must not be eaten, and in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But the fifth year you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you, I am the Lord your God. Friends, especially those of you with orchards, when you plant trees, are you sinning if you eat the fruit or harvest before the fifth year? Verse 26, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. Okay, I think we get the magic thing and the omens, but are rare steaks off limits for Christians? And seriously, verse 27, you shall not round off the hair of your temples or mar the edges of your beard. Men, when you taper the sides of your hair at the barbershop, are you sinning? Verse 28, you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead. Okay, fine, not tempted so much to do that. Or tattoo yourselves. Some of us are in trouble. I am the Lord. Are tattoos okay for believers? Many Baptists say no. We're non-denominational. Verse 29, do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. Good. Uh, Don't sell your daughter into prostitution. If you do, not only will you face church discipline, but you're going to jail. Okay? We get that. It's illegal. Uh, Verse 30, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. This one gets a little bit dicey. As Christians, are we obligated to keep the laws of the Sabbath? There's not agreement on that. And in one sense, this may seem like a silly exercise, but these are the kinds of questions that Christians have been asking with earnestness for the past 2,000 years. And these commands are side by side in the text, and so why would we say we should follow one but not the other? How do you make decisions on what commands apply to you? Or is it arbitrary? these are God's words to us, and we have to take them seriously. We are people who want to obey and honor God and follow him with our whole hearts, but sometimes it's not all that clear what that looks like. And so, are we left to cherry-pick the commands of Scripture, or is there a better way? Well, let's open to Matthew 5 together. Matthew 5, we find ourselves back in the Sermon on the Mount And we're going to hear Jesus give us some sobering words about the commandments of God, including the commands that we just read together. We're going to be looking together at verse 19 today, but it comes in the context of verses 17 through 20, so I'll read those to you. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, the Sermon on the Mount spans three whole chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, and the big idea of the entire Sermon on the Mount is that those whom Jesus redeems look like Jesus. Those who are saved will increasingly look like their Savior. And to make clear that Jesus is not in any way teaching a works-based salvation where if we reach enough likeness to Christ, therefore we will enter the kingdom of heaven, he starts the whole sermon with the Beatitudes to show that it's the kind of people, the kind of depraved sinners who realize that they have no spiritual resource or merits before the Holy One, who mourn over their sin, who come to him trusting in Christ alone, who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It is those people to whom he preaches the Sermon on the Mount Because they are the only ones who even could possibly, with his help, by his spirit, and in his saving grace, grow in holiness. This person, the Christian, will, as verses 13 through 16 says, live a life of godly influence in the world. Preserving truth and goodness and beauty, even as they're shining the light of the glory of Christ. With their lives and with their words. And because Jesus' first audience as he preached this sermon were Jews who were taught by their Pharisees and scribes a works-based righteousness through a twisting of the law, Jesus makes it very clear that in preaching a sermon of salvation by grace, he's not in any way doing away with the Mosaic law that they loved and treasured as God's word to them. The misinterpretations of the Pharisees and the scribes did not mean that they could throw out God's word. And so he says in verse 17 that he did not come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. And in verse 18, he says plainly that the scriptures are permanent, that that they can't be altered in the slightest. They are God's eternal word to us. And in our text today, in verse 19, Jesus says that because the scriptures are permanent, they are forever binding on us as Christian citizens of the kingdom of heaven citizens of a kingdom over which Jesus reigns as king. All of God's commands are binding for all of God's people. And there's the rub. Think back to our text from Leviticus. If none of the scriptures can pass away and we're not to relax any single commandment of God's word, then how are we to live? Do we go back and pick up with the sacrifices, observe the Sabbaths, the agriculture laws, the shaggy sideburns. What do we do? Well, the immediate context of what Jesus is saying in verse 19 is the commandments of Moses. But we want to understand how to apply God's commands as Christians who are living under the new covenant. Because that makes all the difference. And so to rightly apply what Jesus is saying to us in Matthew 5, 19, to our, our gathering of the saints at sun valley church in 2021 i want to do two things this morning first i want to look at the nature of the old covenant the laws of moses and examine that covenant's relationship to us as christians in light of the new covenant and specifically what i hope to convince you of this morning is that as christians under the new covenant we're not under obligation to any of the mosaic covenant as such And when we see this, it's going to give us a way forward to those parts of the Bible that we find obscure, hard to apply, and so we take by faith. We got some credit just for reading them. (laughs) And then second, as Christians under the new covenant, I want to consider the weighty words of Jesus here in verse 19 about how we keep all of his commands in loving obedience to him. And when we get to the heart of what he's saying to us here in this verse, we see that when we love God we will seek to do and to teach all of God's commandments. When we love God, we will seek to do and to teach all of God's commandments and to apply them rightly. So you ready? Let's look at our covenants together. See, the Old Covenant is also called the Mosaic Covenant. And from very close to the beginning of time, God has made covenants with his people. He made a covenant with Noah not to flood the earth again. He made a covenant with Abraham that he would create the Jewish nation and bless them with the eternal inheritance of the promised land, that he would give to them a people and that from that people would come the Messiah who would be a blessing to the nations. And of course, we know from the covenant with David that that Messiah would come from David's line of the family of Judah through David and coming to Christ. Well, in Exodus 19, which if you're following this year's Bible reading plan of some sort, you're probably there right about now. God speaks to Israel in the wilderness at the foot of Mount Sinai. He tells them that if they would receive his covenant and obey it, he would be to them their God and they would be to him, his chosen people. And so he makes this covenant with them beginning in Exodus 20, starting with the Ten Commandments, and that covenant spans through basically the end of Deuteronomy. That's the Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 20 through the end of Deuteronomy. Everything else that happens in the Old Testament from there looks back to that covenant and seeks to apply it. The prophets exposit it and apply it and call God's people back to it. And so all of the Old Testament happens in light of that covenant that God made with the people through Moses. And because he made it with them through Moses, it's called the Mosaic Covenant. Those two terms are synonymous, the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant. And when Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, I have not come to abolish the law, the law is the Mosaic covenant. That's what he's referring to. Well, what Jesus says very clearly here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is that he fulfills the Old Covenant. Christ fulfilled the Old Covenant and the prophets, he says. And we saw in the the sermon on verse 17 that there are several ways in which Jesus did that. So far from doing away with that portion of God's word, Jesus comes and fills it up. He takes it to its concluding end. He is the purpose for which it was given. So first of all, Jesus perfectly obeyed every command of God in the Old Covenant, as Rick told us this morning. And because of that, his perfect life was able to be our perfect substitute so that our sinful lives would be credited to Jesus and his righteousness credited to us through faith in him. He also fulfilled the sacrificial laws. All of the animals, the blood of bulls and goats and sheep that could not save anybody pointed forward to him so that his sacrifice as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world would be the final sacrifice. And theologian Wayne Grudem recounts more ways in which Jesus fulfills the law. He writes, Jesus fulfilled the laws and regulations about priests by becoming our great high priest." He fulfilled the law about circumcision by the circumcision of Christ, Colossians 2.11, which gives us new hearts that are responsive to God's will. He fulfilled the Sabbath law by bringing us into the eternal rest of salvation. And he fulfilled the Old Testament laws for civil government by establishing for himself a kingdom that is not of this world, John 18.36. And so Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant in his life, death, and resurrection, and he changed the way that the Mosaic Covenant would apply to his people from that time on. And in fact, the New Testament explicitly teaches that the entire purpose of the Mosaic Covenant was to bring people to Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3. He says, why then the law? What's it for? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. Through faith, And so you see, the whole purpose of the Mosaic Covenant, of the law, was to bring people to Christ, leading them safely as a guardian leads a child to its parent. But now that Christ has come, the law of Moses has served its purpose, and we're no longer under that guardian as God's people. And to be precise, it was at the moment that Jesus died that the Mosaic Covenant ceased to function over God's people and the new covenant began. Think about what happened at the death of Jesus. He was hanging on the cross as the true and only and final sacrifice for the sins of all who come to him by faith, which is precisely what the law required, the death of a substitute for the satisfaction of sins, pointing forward to Jesus, who was the only substitute who could actually take away sins, And this is what Luke records, Matthew records it also. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Matthew tells us it was from top to bottom, signifying that it was God who did it. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathes his last. Friends, this curtain was a very, very thick curtain that was the barrier between the presence of God and his people under the Mosaic Covenant. And its being torn by God at the death of Christ is a very graphic picture that the old covenant had now made way for the new. God's people would have his law written not on tablets of stone, but on their hearts. They would no longer be barred from the presence of God with the mediator of a priest, but they would come into the presence of God through the great high priest. This is what was happening. The new covenant that Jesus said is in my blood. And the author of Hebrews connects the blood of Christ to the beginning of the new covenant and the ending of the old covenant. If you would briefly turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. This is very striking. It's very clear as well. We're going to look at Hebrews 8, for just a moment, beginning at verse 8. And we're going to see what the new covenant is all about. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, the clearest place where we see the new covenant. Okay. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so it's not like the old covenant. Uh, For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach, each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So, friends, as soon as that new covenant had been promised, Hundreds of years before Christ came, the old covenant, by the fact that the new one was promised, began to become obsolete. And then when Christ dies, the Mosaic covenant gives way to the new covenant, and finally, as the author says in verse 13 here, it was ready to vanish away, which just a few years after Hebrews was written, it did vanish away, because the Romans came into Jerusalem, completely destroyed the temple, the old covenant could no longer function and then in chapter 9 in verses 15 through 16 he says therefore he referring to Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred okay a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant for where a will is involved a death the death of the one who made it must be established And that's exactly what happened. The death of the one who made the covenant was established. His death inaugurated the new covenant. The old covenant was no longer in force. Now, as far as salvation goes, okay, and hear me very clearly, because we have to understand this as we read all of our Bibles. As far as salvation goes, nobody in heaven has ever been saved any other way than by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. See, until the death of Christ, all of God's people under the Old Covenant were saved by grace, looking forward in faith to the coming Messiah. They lived under and were bound to obey the law of Moses, but not for salvation. Okay, not for salvation, but signifying their status as God's people. That law basically boiled down to, you shall be my people by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. But since the moment of Christ's death, God's people are saved now by looking back in faith to the death of Christ. No longer bound to obey the law of Moses, but now under the law of Christ. Here's the point. Christians, we live under the law of Christ, not the law of Moses. Christ's death annulled the Mosaic Law and ushered in the New Covenant with commands that were appropriate to that New Covenant. Not written on stone tablets, but on our hearts. So our heart obedience is what's going on. And if you're still in Hebrews with me, turn back one other passage to chapter 7, verses 11 through 12. If I'm not convincing you yet that the law has changed from the law of Moses to the law of Christ, look what he says about the high priesthood of Jesus. Verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Well, friends, the Mosaic law requires that priests come from the tribe of Levi. And as long as there was a priest from the tribe of Levi, there was not a change in the priesthood. But Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, a priest after the order of Melchizedek which would be a violation of Mosaic law if the Mosaic law were still in force. But because the Mosaic law was only to come until the death of Christ, and Christ is now our high priest, there is a change in the law as well. We are no longer under the law of Moses, but under the law of Christ. And so you ask, well, what is the law of Christ? A good question. Paul refers to it in Galatians 6.2. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you want to boil it down, the law of Christ is this. It's all of Christ's commandments to us, as well as the example he set for us in his perfect life. It is all of Christ's commandments to us, as well as the example that he set for us in his perfect life. It's the new commandment that Christ gave in the upper room when he said, love one another as I have loved you. It boils down also to love of God and love of neighbor, and it expresses itself in a way that is appropriate to the new covenant. Now I know, we're doing some deep theology here. (laughs) I can see the steam coming out of your ears But this is all for a reason. We need to get this if we're going to rightly apply what Jesus says in Matthew 5.19, that we cannot loosen the least of these commandments without doing ourselves spiritual harm. And so I'd like to keep it simple here and boil it down to three statements, three statements that will keep this clear for us. This will set us on a path for understanding how to apply Matthew 5.19. Taking everything that we've just seen from Hebrews, Galatians, the Old Testament, bringing it together, three statements. The first of which is this, Christians are not bound by any of the Old Covenant. Christians are not bound by any of the Old Covenant. You see, because Christ's death fulfilled the Old Covenant and replaced it with the New Covenant, Christians are not bound by any of the Old Covenant. Paul understood this, which is what he was getting at when he says this to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. See that? I'm not under the law, referring to the Mosaic law. I'm under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. See, Paul, who friends, is the Jew of Jews, okay? He had all the Jewish credentials. He recognized that with the coming of the new covenant, the old covenant was no longer binding. He was no longer under the law of Moses, but under the law of Christ, which the apostle James, or which James in his first letter calls the royal law and the law of liberty, okay? So in the New Testament, this law of Christ is variously called the law of God, the law of Christ, the royal law, the law of liberty, It is all of Christ's commands to us. And as Christians, whose spiritual heritage is rooted in the Reformation, I want to just examine for a moment the most traditional way of of dividing up the law of Moses and see if it holds up to what we're saying here. Within the Reformed tradition, there's a way of handling the law of Moses that I know that many of you are familiar with. See, the reformers and their spiritual heirs broke up the 600 or so commands of Moses into three categories. They said that the moral law governs our personal ethics, things like do not commit adultery, do not murder, love your neighbor as yourself, honor your father and mother. So according to the reformers, these are the laws of Moses that Christians are always under. They're always obligated to keep. We're under the moral law of Moses, they said. And then there's also the ceremonial law, laws that govern the worship life of Israel, things like the, the laws about circumcision and sacrifices and Sabbaths and tithes and the priesthood. And since Christ came as the final sacrifice, he became our final and great high priest. He gave us Uh, He fulfilled these ceremonial laws. The Reformers taught that Christians are no longer under the ceremonial laws of Moses. They are under the moral laws. They're not under the ceremonial laws. And then there was the civil laws, is this third category that the Reformers taught. The laws that governed Israel's national life. Laws like agriculture laws or laws about how to go to war. Laws about what to do when you find mold in your house and such as these things. But the church is not national Israel and so the reformers taught that even though we're under the moral law of Moses, we're not under the ceremonial law and we're not under the civil law. And this is how the reformed tradition has broken down the old covenant and applied it today. And that's been a very handy guide for the church. And it's enshrined for us in such magnificent documents as the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London Baptist Confession of Faith. But here's the problem with it, okay? And I'm treading lightly here because we're standing on the shoulders of giants. Here's the problem with that. Scripture never divides the law into different parts. Jesus and the apostles never give any indication that the law can be divided up. They take it as a whole. Not to mention the fact that there's never been clear agreement among Reformed theologians as to which laws fall into which categories. And as we saw from our sampling in Leviticus, there's some laws that seem like we really ought to do them, and then other ones right next to it that seem like, eh, that one was for another time. But there's a better way. There's a better way. As we've seen in Hebrews and Galatians and Corinthians, with the coming of the New Covenant, we're no longer obligated to obey any part of the Old Covenant. And I know that sounds radical to some of you, but this is not a new idea. Many traditional, reformed, orthodox, well-known theologians have written on this biblical truth that the law of Moses in whole is not binding on us as Christians today because that law was specifically meant to govern national Israel living under the kingship of God as a guardian, until the one who would come and inaugurate the new covenant. We live not under the law of Moses, but under the law of Christ. That's the first truth. Second, many of the new covenant commands reflect the old covenant commands. Okay, many of the new covenant commands reflect the old covenant commands because God's character never changes. God's character never changes. As I know, some of you have been sitting there objecting in your minds to what I'm saying and pointing out to yourselves that so many of the old covenant commands are repeated in the new covenant and we're commanded to obey them. Like, do not murder or commit adultery. Worship God alone. Don't covet. Don't steal. Love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. And friends, that's true. Many of them are repeated for us in the New Testament. And many that aren't repeated are nevertheless implied and this is exactly the kind of thing that we would expect this is exactly the kind of thing that we would expect because friends what's the point of the commandments of God for us isn't it that we would live holy lives that reflect God's holy character it is and the thing that we see about God's holiness is that it never changes. His character never alters. He cannot change. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And that being the case, it would make an awful lot of sense that some of the commands given to Israel to reflect God's holiness would be the exact same kind of things that we as children of the new covenant would also be doing to reflect the same character of the same God who is still holy as he was makes sense to us. Because God is the Lord and giver of life, murder is off the table. Because marriage is to show the love of Christ in the church, adultery is wicked under the old covenant and under the new. But just because many of the commands from Moses are repeated under the new covenant does not mean that we as Christians are bound to obey the Mosaic covenant. Because we are not under the law of Moses, but under the law of Christ. Third truth. Here we go. Last one, Christians love and apply the Old Covenant in light of the New Covenant because it is God's eternal word. See, now we're in a position to apply what Jesus says in Matthew 17, in Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Because if Jesus fulfills the Old Covenant and does not abolish it, like he says in verse 17, as far as getting rid of it, it's still God's word, And if all of scripture is God's enduring word, as Jesus says in verse 18, and if anyone who relaxes the least of these commandments does so to his own detriment, as he says in verse 19, then what are we to do with the old covenant in our lives today? Well, I would suggest to you this. We would apply it in light of the new covenant because what Paul says about it is entirely true. What does Paul say about every word that God has ever given? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay? All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful. So even though we are not under the old covenant, it is profitable for us to learn who God is, who we are, and what it means to live as his holy people. So we love the Old Covenant, we apply the Old Covenant in light of the New Covenant because it's God's eternal word. So we apply the laws of sacrifice by coming to Christ as our final sacrifice and then offering our lives as a living sacrifice to God, as Paul says in Romans 12. We apply the circumcision laws by having circumcised hearts that are warm toward the word of God, that are given new life in the gospel. The New Testament teaches us how to apply the Old Testament. And, if that seems daunting to you, take heart. As Wayne Grudem says, this is the work of a lifetime. You have the rest of your life to keep plugging away, learning how to read the Old Testament, how to apply Leviticus 19 in light of the New Covenant. Okay? God is pleased with this effort. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So let's talk now about living by grace in loving obedience to all of God's commands, okay? So in order to take Jesus' words about not relaxing the least commandment seriously, we had to do that legwork, okay? Okay? It's not often we need to do that much legwork to get the context, but, but, but now we've done it. We're here, we're ready, okay? And we can give ourselves for the last few minutes to our second task of considering what it looks like to live by grace in loving obedience to God's commands. Well, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' portrait, okay, of how we as citizens of his kingdom live with him as our king. And so if you want to know what it means to live as Christ, read the Sermon on the Mount. That's the picture. Jesus lived that perfectly, and nobody can live that kind of life unless they've been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and are empowered by His Spirit to grieve over their sin, to hunger and thirst after righteousness, and then, as they're walking with the Lord day by day, to increasingly conform to His image. And we've just seen that as sinners who are saved by grace under the new covenant, we're not under the law of Moses, but the law of Christ which unfortunately for many Christians over the course of church history has been, to them, a license to sin. They've thought that because they're not under law but under grace, therefore they can go do anything their flesh desires without impunity because after all, we're under grace. Those kind of Christians, um, perhaps not the kind that flagrantly disregard God's word, but the, but the kind who aren't that concerned with uh, diligently applying all that Christ says, who are half hearted in their Christianity, they may cling to Christ by faith and therefore are saved, but they're half hearted in it. And they don't proactively, daily submit their lives to scriptures. They may be Christians, but only just. Okay, and, and make no mistake, I'm not talking about so-called carnal Christians who, who truly just have no interest in following the Lord at all. They just live in unrepentant sin, never repenting, never turning to Christ. That's not the kind of person I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about the person who, who, who does come to their Bible, who does come to church, who is believing in Christ alone, who is saved, and yet has some concerning habits in their lives that don't match up to the scriptures. These are the kind of people that Jesus has in mind when he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. You see, he says that these kind of people, they are in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? Nobody who's not saved is going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Okay? But they've taken a cavalier attitude toward part of God's word. See, we can't read through the Gospels without seeing that Jesus does not consider all commandments to be given equally. So he says that what? He says the greatest commandments are to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. He calls out the Pharisees because they're scrupulously keeping the commandments about tithing their dill and cumin and herbs and spices and then neglecting what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law, doing justice and mercy and what does Jesus say to them? He doesn't say, stop tithing your spices. He says, no, keep doing that. The law requires it. But do the, do the more significant stuff. Do justice. Be merciful as you're doing these garden things. See, the Christian is intended to be somebody who lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, if you love God and have trusted in Christ for your salvation, then you are under his lordship. Lordship. And every command he gives is your personal business. But many Christians are half-hearted Christians, cherry-picking their way through the scriptures, deciding what they're going to obey and what isn't as significant. They recognize that it's probably important to show up to church with their family. It's probably important to honor their marriage. But they ignore the commands of generous giving or of not grumbling and complaining. And some Christian men faithfully labor at their jobs to provide for their wives and children, but yet they ignore the command to pray without ceasing and to teach their children a Christian worldview in every sphere of life. Some Christian women faithfully bear one another's burdens, but they're not so careful about submitting and respecting their husbands and not gossiping. Whatever the case may be, and for each of us, with our spiritual experience and makeup, it's gonna look a little different what we tend to cherry-pick, but we can't afford to be half-hearted Christians. We can't afford to do it, to loosen any of God's commands in Scripture. Just make no mistake. Whether or not you ever set foot in a Sunday school classroom as a teacher, you are teaching. The people in your life, your children, Your grandchildren, your colleagues will watch how you handle God's word in your personal life, and then they will find justification to follow suit. And what what does Jesus say here is the result of half-hearted Christianity that takes a kind of cavalier approach to the Bible? Well, he says that those who do this will be called least in the kingdom of heaven the kind of people that Jesus envisions, they'll be in heaven, they'll be reigning with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, but he says that they will be called by God the least. They will have diminished status. They will have deteriorated reward. And I know that seems kind of odd, doesn't it? We are all on equal footing before the cross to to then say that there will be diminished status in heaven. But yet Jesus and the apostles clearly teach that there is difference of reward and status in heaven. See Paul cautions us to check our motives as we're walking with Christ as we're serving the Lord. See the Corinthian church was full of a bunch of show-offs and self-styled know-it-alls who were so busy about the work of the ministry for the sake of personal gain and prestige. On the outside it looked like they were doing good ministry perhaps, and yet Paul says, "Hey, take Take heed, okay? One day you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and listen to what Paul says. If anyone builds on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, precious stones, this is good stuff, wood, hay, and straw, it's not as great if, if it's going to go through fire, uh, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire, by the skin of his teeth. He'll have the reward of heaven, but his rewards in heaven will be greatly diminished, because he didn't build by faith in faithful obedience. Friends, we do not want to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Instead, we want to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so here's the warning to you from Jesus. Don't be a half-hearted Christian who cherry-picks his way through the Christian life because you're saved by grace and not by works. Salvation is indeed by grace, but status in the kingdom comes by faithful obedience. And so Paul asks, what then? Are we to sin because grace grace, because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means, he says. And may it be for us, by no means. Well, if half-hearted Christianity results in that kind of spiritual harm, then let's finish this morning by looking at the reward that Jesus promises in verse 19 for wholehearted Christianity. So what does Jesus say about those who live by the word of God, who take it seriously to every command that he's given? He says whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven vibrant love for jesus results in great reward in the kingdom vibrant love for jesus results in great reward in the kingdom and so jesus tells us in john 14 if you love me keep my commandments our love for christ is reflected in how we treat his word down to the most minute detail. Wholehearted Christianity commits itself wholeheartedly to the whole of God's word, seeking to apply all of it in light of the new covenant and obey it fully with God's help. And this too is something that will be taught. Those who see us handle the word in that way will learn, even if they have no idea that they're learning it, that this book is to be esteemed. What God has said actually matters for our lives. And so while the world continues to, to run off in obscurity, continuing to get farther and farther from any kind of biblical norm at all and thinks that we're crazy for being so antiquated in our values, God looks at us and says, great is your reward. You will be great in the kingdom of heaven. And this is the essence of discipleship. Jesus left us as a church with the Great Commission. He says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If any of you are here today and have not trusted in this King, in this Christ, in this Savior alone for your salvation. If you're not sure that your sins have been forgiven, then I would urge you to come to Christ this very hour for salvation. I would ask you to come and talk with me after the service or or turn to the person who brought you to church today and ask them to point you to another one of the elders. Because what you have heard today is nothing less than the good news of salvation through Christ and how his word changes your life now and in the age to come. And brothers and sisters in Christ, as those who are saved by grace and who live under the new covenant, with God's perfect law written on our hearts, we have the spirit of the living God dwelling in us by faith. And we can live in loving obedience to all of God's commands, showing that we value the Christ who gave his life for us. The question before us today is simply whether we will wholeheartedly do and teach all of God's commands. May it be our desire. May it be what we pray for and depend on Christ for, because we can't pull it off on our own. Please pray with me. Oh, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, author of our salvation, who sent your Son to be our Savior, Jesus, who preached to us the Sermon on the Mount, showing us the way of salvation and then accomplishing that salvation on the cross. Holy Spirit, who gives us the new birth, who puts in our hearts desires that we would never be able to fabricate on our own, desires to walk in the commands of Christ, to live under the law of liberty, to show the world the Savior we have come to love, trust, in, and treasure. We ask our God, three in one, For your help. We ask for your grace to enable us to do what we cannot do. We ask for your aid to treasure the words that so easily become mundane and routine for us. We pray for new eyes to see the commands of your word as exciting and vibrant, that we would pray like the psalmist. May we do them with our whole hearts. Your precepts are our delight. Lord, we pray and that you would help us as we read our Bibles this year, as we come to passages we don't understand, to trust that you are enriching us in these things, that you have given us the knowledge through Christ of how to apply them, that we might know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that we might be sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, if any remain unconverted here in our church this day, we would ask you to do your converting work of grace and to enlighten their eyes and their affections for the first time, trusting in Christ alone to now delight in reading and doing all that you have written. We praise you, Jesus, that you have promised that in the work of teaching these things, you are with us always to the very end of the age. And so we look with great anticipation to that day when we will see you face to face. And we pray with the apostle, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.